it's, it's like you're in a movie theater with really loud music. And you know how it has the sound that comes from all around you? It's called a Dolby audio thing. And it's like you hear a boom over there, and you hear crashing over there, and you hear loud noises behind you, and it, the sound comes at you from all directions. And, and it's like you're in a really loud a chaotic movie where there's lots of sound, lots of volume. I, I looked up uh, what are the loudest movies, and I had a list of loud movies. It's like you're in a really loud movie with a lot of chaos and noise, and you can feel the vibrations of the sound. Your sternum vibrates from the loud sounds that are coming at you. And so as all this noise and chaos is going on around you, it's in that moment you decide that you absolutely must go get popcorn. So you get up from your seat, you walk down the aisle, it's still loud noises everywhere, and you exit out the door into the hallway headed toward the concessions. And a funny thing happens as you leave that door and go into the hallway, They've soundproofed that theater so much that it's like you walk through that door and all of a sudden the big, booming, noisy atmosphere you were just in is quiet. And you walk down a quiet hallway and you, you go up to the concession stand where it's, it's pretty peaceful. They're kind of chill because the movie's already started by that point. You've, you've escaped the chaos in the lobby and the concession workers talk politely to you. Maybe they're a little bored and it's, it's very low-key. And you get your popcorn, and you pay $300 for it. <laughs> and then you quietly walk back down your hallway to your theater, and you enter the theater door, and instantly you are in the big, booming noises coming at you, hearing the booms over here and the sonic booms over there and the vibrations and all the, all the loud noises are all happening around you once again. And that's exactly like what's happening in our scripture today. Let me back up. So two weeks ago, in Acts chapter 21, the Apostle Paul, after all of his missionary journeys, returns to Jerusalem, comes to visit James, who is pastoring the Christian church in Jerusalem. Paul, by this point, had already had multiple dreams and prophecies that had been given to him of the Lord telling him, you're going to go back to Jerusalem and you will be persecuted. You will suffer. It's not going to be fun going back home again. And he gets, sure enough, he gets back, and James, as the pastor of the Jerusalem church, says, hey, Paul, we're really glad to see you. You're bringing, like, a really great report, but we're very worried about you, and you are not safe here. And so James says, we, we've come up with an idea that we think is going to help, because everybody out there thinks that you're anti-Jew. You're, like, so pro-Gentile that you're anti-Jew. Everybody thinks that. So what we want you to do is we want you to go to the temple and just— worship God. Like, and they had this whole big plan. And they said, we just want you to go and just show everybody you're not against the Jews and you're doing everything right according to all the Jewish laws. And Paul says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your advice. I'll take your recommendation and I'm going to go do that. So Paul goes to the temple and as we, we talked about a couple weeks ago, it doesn't go at all like they planned. In fact, it backfired. The crowd at that point 
went wild. They went absolutely crazy. There's actually a mob. If you were here, you were part of yelling, the yelling. Do you remember yelling in church? Yes. Okay, we were part of the yelling. We were creating all of the noise that was part of the big, loud experience that was going on in downtown Jerusalem. And they're yelling, this is the man who brought Gentiles into the temple, making this whole big thing about it. The people lose their minds. And a Roman commander Here's the chaos, and part of the Roman commander's job in, their, in their, this Jewish territory is they're supposed to keep the Roman peace. And so this Roman commander runs to deal with the problem. The only way he can figure out how to deal with the problem is to arrest Paul. So he arrests Paul, and, and, uh, and it's all this noise and all this chaos. And then we get to the pa- section of Scripture that Pastor Phil covered last week, where Paul then gives his testimony to the crowd. Paul has an opportunity to speak to them. And he, he addresses the crowd and says, brothers and, sister, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak, they became very quiet. Huge mob, super loud, suddenly becomes very quiet. This is the moment when you walk out of the movie theater to get your popcorn. Okay, So, so the mob instantly quiets down to silence when Paul starts to speak. It's incredible. I mean, this is a lot of people. There's no rumbling noises, no 3D noise coming at you. Everyone is quiet, listening hard to Paul's words. And Paul preaches the gospel to this group, this huge group of people. He says, like you, I'm a Jew. I I was born in Tarsus, but I was raised here in Jerusalem just like you. I'm a Jerusalem boy. He said, when I was here, I I was a good Jew. I followed all the laws. I, I persecuted Christians. I condemned them to death. I was zealous, just like you are. He's building rapport with them. And he said, but then... I had an encounter with Jesus. He says, I'll tell you what happened. And he goes into his whole story and he says, I was walking down the road and there was this light and this voice. And he tells the whole thing and they're they're listening. And then he says, the Lord gave me a calling. He put a calling on my life. He gave me an assignment. And he said, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now they've been listening attentively up until this moment. But as soon as he says, I will send you to the Gentiles, this is the moment when you've gotten your popcorn and you enter back into the loud theater. Because they erupt in noise. They erupt in chaos. Boom, there's the mob. It's loud. Everybody's out of control all over again. Acts 22, verse 22 is where we are reading today. Paul says, The Lord tells me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live! I mean, they're ready to kill him because of this assignment to the Gentiles that God has given him. And this is where we pick up today's passage. Things aren't going to go well for Paul today. And I'm curious, I just can't help but wonder. We don't have anything in the scripture at this point about what James was thinking about all this. How James was maybe worrying about this church that he was shepherding. We wonder what, I wonder what James was thinking. I mean, after all, it was his idea, it was his recommendation that Paul go to the temple to, to demonstrate that he's in line with the Jews. And if it hadn't been for James pushing it, Paul probably wouldn't have done it, or at least it wouldn't have happened like this. And I just imagine James thinking... <laughs> with all of this chaos breaking loose around him. What if? What if I hadn't encouraged him to go? Maybe this wouldn't all be happening. 
Have you asked that question at a memorable time in your life? What if? What if I'd never done that? What if I had said no instead of yes? What if I said yes instead of no? And here we are in today's passage, verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. So the Roman commander steps in. He says, Paul, you've got to go to the barracks. It's like jail. And on, by the way, we're also going to have you flogged because that's the way that we can interrogate you and question you and, you know, just make sure that you are in submission to Rome. Uh, let me talk for a moment about the barracks. This is the fortress of Antonia, the fortress of Antonia. And you can see in this picture, let me just explain what you're looking at here. In the very center, that the tallest part of the building, is the Jewish temple. This is called the Temple Mount, this whole area. And on the far left with the four towers, that is the fortress of Antonia. King Herod, Herod the Great, was the person who built this. He built this second temple for the, for the Jews, and he built the fortress of Antonia as a place of, uh, to store things and to house Roman soldiers and just to provide peace. And it was also a refuge that Jews would hide in. This King Herod, he's dead now by this time in the story, but this was the same Herod who tried to kill the baby Jesus, okay? Same guy. And this fortress, it was a castle-type structure was he built it for the Jews to, to gain their, their political favor. And so it's here that Paul is taken. And the Roman commander says, we're going to take you here and we're going to have you flogged. Like we're just going to, Romans are known for their cruelty, and he said, we're going we're to have you flogged. Uh, flogging was done with an instrument called the flagellum. This was the Roman flagellum. And this w consisted of leather straps that had bits of metal, iron and zinc, parts were tied into these leather straps. Sometimes it was parts of bones. And they were designed, they were intentionally chosen to be sharp. And so it would be thrown against a person's back and would tear their flesh open. Often people were instructed to bend over so that it would tighten the skin on their back so it would dig in and tear up more flesh. Paul has been beaten Paul has been whipped, he has been hit with rods, he has been stoned. He hasn't ever been flogged. This would be the first time. People didn't always come through flogging alive. A lot of times people would die in the process, but the Romans were experts at torture. That was something that they studied, and so when the flogging was part of a crucifixion, just like it was for Jesus, Jesus was flogged before he was crucified, the Romans were trained to stop the flogging before they actually died so that they could still then be taken to crucifixion. Paul's experienced things, but this would, be, this would be worse. But something interesting happens next. Verse 25, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. 
What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, he's, he's skeptical. The commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. I find it so interesting that Paul waits until this moment. Back when the commander in front of the mob said, all right, take him away and have him flogged, Paul could have entered, I, I, I probably would have spoken quickly and said, ah, ah, you can't, can't do that, I'm a citizen. I, I mean, like, maybe like pretty quick I would have said something. But Paul waits until he's literally stretched out, waiting to be flogged. And he says, time out. I'm a citizen. Just a good reminder to us, citizenship offers us some security that you don't have if you're not a citizen. You know we have our immigrant connection ministry here at City Life, and people want citizenship because it offers protections to them that otherwise they don't always have. Paul, in this moment, leans on the safety that this provides him. He ends up spending the night in the barracks. He doesn't get flogged. He ends up spending the night in the barracks, and the passage picks up in verse chapter 30, in, uh, verse 30, saying, The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. The commander's still trying to figure out, Paul is a Jew. Why are these Jews so angry with him. What is, what is the big thing going on? He still does not understand it. He says, what do we do with Paul, and why is everybody so worked out about him? I think it's so interesting how this Roman commander has such an interest in this case. I, I think it must be the divine, prevenient provision of God, where God is working through this Roman commander to get Paul exactly where he needs to be. And the Roman commander says, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take Paul to the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish ruling council. It's like the Supreme Court for the Jewish people. Let me just explain a little bit about how that worked. So the Jews had their own religious government, which is what this is with the Sanhedrin. And of course, the Romans had their own government as well. And for, by and large, the Romans, often in areas they would conquer, would allow local people to keep their own forms of government as long as it didn't overshadow what Rome was trying to do. And the Jews here in the Sanhedrin were really able to do pretty much whatever they wanted to do. They could do whatever punishments or fines or whatever they wanted to do, except they couldn't put somebody to death. That's why when Jesus is being, is, is before Caiaphas, before he is crucified, uh, Caiaphas takes Jesus to the Roman authorities and says, hey, you need to condemn him to death. And do you remember Pilate saying, why? What has he done wrong? And Caiaphas is like, he did this and this and this. And Pilate's like, I still don't see it. And you, you know the story. And so, but that's why that was going on. And so here we have the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin consisted of a group of 70 men, 70 Jewish men, and one high priest. So a total of 71 people. And this Supreme Court was made up of, of two groups, kind of like political parties, religious political parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had some slightly different beliefs about some things. The, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, for example, and the Sadducees didn't, which becomes relevant a little bit later on. And so Paul is a Jew standing trial before the Jewish ruling council. 
Paul had also, has also been a Pharisee. He is a Pharisee by learning and by education. And Paul comes to them already considered guilty. He's already on, on the defense. Uh, it's not a good look when you just start off on the defense. It never feels good to be automatically on the defense, does it? You automatically feel condemned. There are accusations coming at him. Paul is determined to defend his faith. So Paul comes and stands before the Sanhedrin. That brings us to chapter 23, verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to me, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Okay, let's talk about that real quick. So the first thing you need to know is this Ananias figure. There are three Ananiases in the Bible, and all of the Ananiases are in the book of Acts. So let me just tell you which one this is in case you're getting a little bit confused about who's who. So at the very beginning of the book of Acts, there is a married couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They are Christians, but they steal some money, and then God strikes them dead. Not the same Ananias here is here, okay? They're dead already. Then there's another Ananias. When Paul, uh, when he is still Saul and he's still persecuting Christians and Jesus meets him on the Damascus Road and then Paul has this encounter with God and then uh, Paul sends him to the home of Ananias who then disciples him and who introduces him to the Christians and says, don't worry, he's not going to kill us anymore. Now he's on our side. He was a good Ananias. This is not that Ananias. Then there's this Ananias, who is the high priest of the Jewish people of the Sanhedrin, and there's nothing good about him. He's just a problem through and through. So in case you're wondering who your Ananiases are, this is that one. So there's this really funny situation here. Paul says, the first thing Paul says to them is, I'm here with a clear conscience. The high priest says, punch him in the jaw. Paul says, God will judge you, you hypocrite. And the Sanhedrin say, you know who that was, right? We can't be totally sure what's going on here. Does Paul actually know that Ananias is the high priest, or does he not know? We can't be totally sure by the way that the scripture is written. It's possible that he didn't know. It's possible that... Usually a high priest would be dressed in a, 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 different, a different kind of robe and turban and different clothing. And usually the high priest would be sitting in a certain place in the Sanhedrin. But I don't know, maybe this, it was a little chaotic. Maybe he wasn't, didn't have time to get dressed in his robes because it was a last-minute meeting. Maybe he wasn't in his regular place. We don't know. It's possible he didn't know. It's also possible Paul knew. It's also possible that Paul knew who Ananias was, and knew he was the high priest. It's possible that Paul, in his way of thinking, was saying, 
I don't recognize you as the high priest, Ananias, because I only recognize one high priest, the great high priest named Jesus Christ. The message paraphrase, the, the message is not a translation of scripture, it's a, it's a paraphrase, so it brings in some, some creative leeway. But the message passage goes like this. Paul acted surprised. How was I to know he was chief priest? He doesn't act like a chief priest. You're right, the scripture does say, don't speak abusively to a ruler of the people. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe it was like that. We can't know for sure. But we do know that at this point in the story, here's what Paul does. He changes the subject. Probably a good idea at this point. He changes the subject. Chapter 23, verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, we find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Here we have yet another major fight going on. And Paul comes into, he knows the Sanhedrin very well. He was a very active, very devout Pharisee, very anti-Christian back in the day. And he knows, he, he knows some of these people. He knows how the Sanhedrin works. And so he comes and he stands before the Sanhedrin, and he knows exactly how to handle this. He's going to pit one group against the other group. He's going to exploit their antagonism toward each other. And he's going to side, with the side himself with the Pharisees, and he's, he's going to say, I'm a Pharisee just like you. And I, the only reason I'm here today is because I believe in the resurrection. And of course, he means the resurrection of Jesus, right? And resurrection in general, but the Pharisees, he's not, Paul's not bringing up the Jesus part in this moment. He's just saying, we're, we're talking about the resurrection right now. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees are like, Oh, that's what's going on. Oh, Paul, he, he's our man. Oh, Paul, we're on your side. All right, Paul, we're on your side. All right, you, you all Sadducees, you go away, you leave him alone. He, he's a good guy. And they have another major thing going on. And they say, we don't find anything wrong with this man. What if a spirit has spoken to him? What if an angel has spoken to him? Which did happen. Paul had that experience. And, and they say, what if it turns out we're fighting against God? In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gave instruction for those who are in positions of spiritual leadership. He says, be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. Be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. And I think that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He knows what he's doing. He knows his audience. And so he says exactly the one thing that's going to do what happened. He knows exactly what to do. And it's at this point when 
this next chaos breaks out that the Roman commander is concerned. It says that Paul would be torn to pieces. You know it's got to be like crazy violent if a Roman commander who's been trained in Roman military stuff is worried about one of his prisoners. So they forcibly remove Paul from the situation leading to the last verse we will cover today. Chapter 23, verse 11. Paul is back in the barracks of the of the, the of Antonia verse 11 the following night the lord stood near paul and said take courage take courage as you have testified about me in jerusalem so you must testify in rome And you know, when you've just taken a bold stand for God, when you've done something risky in the name of Christian leadership, when you've done something courageous and hard, when you've stood for Christ, when it costs you something, there's something that really means a lot about when the word of the Lord comes to you and says, take courage. The Lord is saying to Paul, good job, Paul. Good job. It was hard to do here. And then he says, and there's more for you too. Yeah, Jerusalem is a city of power, but you know what's even more powerful than Jerusalem? Rome. It's kind of like our Washington, D.C. It was the center of political power. And God is saying, I'm going to take you to the most influential places. I'm going to take you where the most powerful rulers of this world are working, and you are going to testify about me to them. I am going to take you to the hardest of places, the most closed of places, the places of greatest spiritual bondage, because I want my gospel proclaimed there. At the beginning, we asked the question, what did James think about all this? I mean, this whole brouhaha came because James had this idea of, Paul, go, go to the temple, and then it all blows up. What if? What if he hadn't sent Paul? And just a few minutes ago, there was another what if question. It, the, the Pharisees said, what if he saw an angel? What if... God spoke to him. And that what-if question changed everything for them. But I think there are a few more what-if questions that we can ask. The first one is this. What if Paul hadn't been a spiritual leader outside his comfort zone? What if Paul never went to people outside of his comfort zone? If you look back at the passage, the thing that made the Jewish leaders crazy here was that Paul went to the Gentiles. The, the Greek word for Gentile is ethnos. Can you guess what word that relates to in English for us? Ethnicity, ethnic. Yes, Paul is sent to the ethnos. He is sent to the nations. 
And the Jews are like, that's not how it works. Like we had Abraham and we had Moses and God came to the Jews and we're supposed to stay away from all those other people. These are people who are outside of our realm of how we do stuff. These are people that we have a problem with that we just do things differently. Back, uh, back two weeks ago when there was the first mob, we talked about the first mob that happened. Do, do you remember there are these Jews from up here in Asia who followed Paul down to Jerusalem, and it's because of them that they, they were the ones who said, Paul is letting Gentiles into the temple. And it was that accusation that then caused the whole ruckus to erupt. And then today, Paul's giving his testimony, and everybody's listening quietly. It, it was the whole, it's the whole moment when you leave the theater to get the popcorn. Everybody's listening quietly. The whole huge crowd is listening attentively until Paul gets to the part in his, in his story when he says, and then the Lord told me to go to the nations. They're like, that's it, that's it. And it all erupts again. It, this going to other people is the thing. The Jews are listening attentively to Paul's testimony. They listen attentively. They, they listen attentively to Paul talking about his encounter with Jesus. But as soon as Paul starts to talk about his calling, that's when it breaks loose. What if Paul refused spiritual leadership to the ethnos? I'm a Gentile. Someone told the Gentile before me who told me, who, who told them, who told them the good news of Jesus, and somehow it got to me through the centuries. Spiritual leadership, spiritual leadership that belongs to God's kingdom is always going to somehow involve ministry with the ethnos, ministry with the nations. It's always going to because God's kingdom isn't designed for just Americans or just Jewish Christians. God's kingdom isn't designed for peop certain people groups, certain colors of people, certain, certain cultures of people. God's kingdom isn't designed for that. His kingdom, his plan has always been for all people around the whole world. And so if we are involved in any kind of spiritual leadership that is in sync with God's kingdom being manifested on this earth, it is somehow at some point going to involve our connection with the ethnos. We've been talking last Sunday and this Sunday about called to serve. And from time to time, we do this emphasis on, on, uh, on serving and ways to jump in in leadership here at City Life. And it's not just because we think that City Life is all that and there's nothing else that you can do to serve God in the world. It's because we believe that the church is a center for developing people and sending people out to do mission and ministry for the sake of the kingdom. If you are here as, as a city lifer for any length of time, the hope is that you won't just be here and consume information and consume interesting Bible teaching or consume good worship. The hope is that you will listen and know the calling of God on your life and say yes. And here we've got an opportunity to practice multi-ethnic ministry right here in our church doesn't matter what color you are, what culture you are, what your first language is. There's somebody here who's different from you. 
We talked last week, Pastor Phil introduced the, the free shape assessment that you can take. We're, we'll be doing a, a shape uh, class in some format coming up. There are educational opportunities he was talking about. The, we are passionately working on providing more and more opportunities for you to learn and understand and identify your calling and for you to grow and mature in your calling, to say yes in deeper and deeper ways. Church is to be a place of mobilization. And so that's why we give you an opportunity to say yes. To say yes, to look at the called to serve brochure and to say yes. It's a blessing for you to say yes. The second question, the second what if question, what if Paul had lacked confidence in spiritual leadership? And in case you're wondering, Paul wasn't lacking confidence, I don't think, in a lot of this passage. I mean, maybe he was a little worried, but mostly we see a Paul who's like full of guts. So in Acts 23, verse 1, Paul's before the Sanhedrin, and he says, he says, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. I hope, City Life, that someday we can stand before God and say, God, I have fulfilled my duty to you. God, the calling that you gave me, the assignment you gave me, I have fulfilled it. Wouldn't that be good to be able to say? Paul says, I have fulfilled my duty to God. And he said, I have a clear conscience that I have followed what God called me to. He knew his assignment and he went after it. Paul's confidence in his clarity doesn't mean that Paul never had questions about things. It doesn't mean that Paul always felt in control of everything. I'm imagining he didn't feel very in control in a lot of the things that we just talked about today. It doesn't mean that Paul always knew all the details. It does mean that he knows the one thing that God has called him to. He doesn't know everything else, but he knows the one thing God has called him to, to reach the ethnos, to reach the other And he comes back to that one thing over and over and over. When he's trying to make a decision, which way do I go? It's always, what, what, who has God called me to? When he's trying to decide how he's going to go there, he always comes back to one thing, who has God called me to? And that's, church, how we find our callings and how we live into them. We don't, we're not going to get the whole script. We're not going to get the whole package of information. We're going to get step one. And God's not going to want to give us step two until we obey step one first. And so you keep in mind that thing, that thing that you know, this is who God's made me to be. This is who God has carved me out to be. This is who God designed me to be. And go after that one thing as truly and as wholeheartedly as you possibly can and stay focused on the one thing. I love the confidence that Paul has. It doesn't mean he's confident in everything. It means he's confident in the one thing he needs to be confident in. Your church can help you grow in confidence and clarity in your calling and purpose. One of the hallmarks of calling, like a calling from the Lord, is that there is, there is usually an affirmation of the church body about what your calling is. Like if you think, oh, I'm called to do this, and every, all the Christians who love Jesus around you are saying, eh, maybe not, that means that you need to listen to that, and maybe, maybe you're close, but you're just a little bit off. Maybe there's some truth that, that's there, but you're not quite all the way in, in terms of understanding where God has you. 
But the church is part of, of validating, yes, we see that God has these gifts in you. Yes, we see the Spirit moving in your life in this way. And the church can help you gain clarity and experience and maturity. And the experience and maturity matter as well, which leads us to our third question. What if Paul had lacked maturity in spiritual leadership? What if Paul were going through the things he went today, 10 years earlier, when he was a younger, more, less experienced Christian? What if? I find it interesting how Paul's maturity plays into this. He was probably in his early 50s around this time. And I don't know, you get to, you get to be middle-aged and you kind of just like stop caring about certain things. And you also become kind of a shyster. Like, you kind of know how the world works, and you're going to kind of start making it work for you. It's, it's very freeing. If you're in your 30s, just wait. It gets better. And so Paul goes to—Paul waits till he's actually stretched out being flogged. He waits until that moment. He strategically has this moment in mind, and they're getting ready to flog him, and he says, by the way, I'm a citizen. And then he's with the Sanhedrin— and he says this thing, you whitewashed wall, and then he's like, oh, I didn't know he was the high priest. <laughs> maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I think he did. And then he says, I'm on the side of the resurrection. Paul knows exactly what he's doing. He's building on his experience. He's building on his years of education. He's building on the internship that he did as a young adult with the Sanhedrin. He's building on all of this knowledge and understanding so that in this moment, he's exercising very mature, carefully calculated spiritual leadership that is just right for that particular moment. Spiritual maturity is formed... When we, are, when we are devoted to spiritual obedience over a long period of time. Maturity comes as we are spiritually obedient over a long period of time. Just getting older does not make you more mature. Just getting older <laughs> doesn't mean you've kept growing either. But spiritual maturity comes as you practice spiritual obedience over a long period of time. You can only grow in that maturity as you obey in all the regular days along the way. Paul, what if Paul had lacked maturity? But he doesn't. And his, his experience and his, his depth of understanding feed into this moment in a very important way. And there's a final question, a question to ask to ask you, what if, what if you say yes to your next steps in spiritual leadership? What if you say yes to the next steps in spiritual leadership? Some of you might have a very clear idea of what your calling is. And maybe you've gotten a little bit distracted by some of the secondary things by some of the other things that it's easy to get distracted. There's a lot going on in life. But what if you said yes to coming back to your calling and saying, that's my main focus. I know this is the one thing you want me to do, God. What if you said yes, and, and maybe you don't know, maybe, maybe you're lacking that sense of purpose. 
But what if you said yes to saying, God, whatever you have for me, I just say yes to it. God, you want me to go to outsiders? You want me to connect with ethnos in some way? God, your kingdom involves crossing those boundaries, and as much as we like the idea, the reality is sometimes hard. The reality is sometimes just uncomfortable. God, you've called us to spiritual, you've called me to spiritual leadership in a different kind of setting. You're called to spiritual leadership with confidence. Not to have confidence in yourself. Not to have confidence because you're just so good at what you do. But to have confidence in the fact that you're made in the image of God. You're called by God. If you are a Christian, if you are a human, you have been designed by God on purpose to have a part in the bigger kingdom manifestation that God is doing in this world. He designed you to jump into what he's doing. That's why you're here. And so your confidence comes from God's purpose and God's design on your life. And you have confidence not in you or not in your skills, not in how much you've achieved, not in how good you are. You have confidence in the God who has made you and has called you. What if you say yes to your next steps in spiritual leadership? You say, maybe you say yes to spiritual maturity. Well, sometimes I just want to be immature. Sometimes I just want to like, just not try so hard. But what if you say yes to saying, all right, I'm just going to... I'm just going to obey that next thing. I'm going to slog along in obedience. It is not glamorous. It is not even interesting. It's not even really what I want to do right now. But I'm just going to be obedient today and tomorrow and the next day. Then I'm going to be obedient Thursday and Friday. And God's going to give you the next thing to obey. He'll give you one step. He's not, he, if you're lucky and if he loves you, he's going to give you steps two and three. Not just, just kidding. But mostly, he's going to give you step one. I was reading about an example this week about someone said, um, I, I needed to, pr- I, I prayed that God would help me with the situation and the Lord told me, you have to forgive that person. And I said, and the, and the person said, but instead of just like going in and, and forgiving that person, instead, I went to my Christian friends and I said, let's start a Bible study on forgiveness. That wasn't what God asked him to do. God said, forgive him. And he's like, let's just, let's just study it a little bit. We do this. We twist these things, don't we? We, have a, we know what God wants us to do, and we get close to doing it, but we kind of shift it just a little bit so that we can do something that's a little bit more comfortable and not quite so risky and not quite so crazy. I want to challenge you to say yes. Say yes to spiritual maturity. Say yes to the hard things that God has called you to do. Say yes if it means imprisonment. Say yes if it means facing people who critique you and people who accuse you. Say yes to standing alone when you're the only one standing. Say yes even if it means flogging. Say yes to God. He's called you and the most beautiful, most fulfilling thing we can do is to say yes. What if Paul had said no? What if Paul had said no? Would he have, would God have reached the Gentiles? Well, Paul wouldn't have gone. I believe God would have reached the the ethnos. God would have had another plan because his plan from all along was to reach the whole world. His plan was never just to keep it right here. God would have figured out a plan B. He would have figured out a different, different person. But Paul would have missed out. 
and we'd be missing a whole bunch of our New Testament because Paul wrote lots of it while he was in prison. Will you say yes? I don't want you to miss out. It's really the most beautiful privilege we have, joining in the work that God is doing. So Jesus, we say yes to you today. Where we have hesitations or hang-ups, we intentionally lay those down right now. Where, I have, where we have reasons, all of our good reasons why we shouldn't do what you want, Lord, we, as we sang earlier, we, we surrender those to you. And God, where we have delusions of thinking that following you looks like one thing and you're like, just come back to me. Give us the gift of understanding. Give us your truth. So Jesus, today we say to you, yes, and we pray with the prophet Isaiah, here am I, Lord, send me. And we stand with the Apostle Paul. And we say, we stand here because of our hope in the resurrection. Because of our belief in Jesus. And Lord, may we simply have the absolute, utter privilege of one day being able to stand before you, knowing that we have fulfilled our duty to you, and that we have a clear conscience. Thank you, God, for the gift of your Holy Spirit who loves to bring us understanding, who loves to bring us into light, and who absolutely delights in helping us find our place in your purpose in this world. Amen.